to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett, mike lovett. hello rachel yes this is mike lovett and you are listening to and if love remains and we are i'm very excited to today um, have on the program professor marie pittick um, Professor Piddick is uh, a Scottish historian, the Bradley Professor of Literature at the University of Glasgow and Pro Vice Principal at the University. He is one of Scotland's leading cultural historians and his books include um, the uh, Culloden, um, Enlightenment in a Smart City, The Myth of the Jacobite Clans, and Robert Burns in Global Culture. And I'm really excited to talk about his new book that just came out called Scotland, The Global History, 1603 to the Present. Um, I, I really enjoy um, uh, history and I enjoyed th- this book. I think it's is has been a, a one I've been looking forward to because um, I, in some ways, Scotland seems to kind of punch above its weight in many regards. And and I'm excited to have uh, Murray on to, to come and talk about that. So welcome to the show, Murray. Good to be here, Mike. Good to talk to you again. Wonderful. Well, I, I want to start with that, actually. The Scotland is um, does seem to kind of punch above its weight as far as, you know, um, the amount of people, the size of the country, the, the amount of political power that it holds. And yet it is has brought so much to the world in, in, in terms of um, um, culture, economics. Um, uh, there, there's just so much so much that's, that it brings. Why did you write this book, and what was, um, yeah, what, what was your what, what problem were you trying to solve in, in writing this book? So uh, this book came about because Yale University Press approached me and said that they'd like a history of Scotland, and I said to them, "You don't want another history of Scotland. There are quite a lot of those. What you want is Scotland, the global history." So I wrote it particularly uh, to position at Scotland in terms of its global networks over the last uh, 400 and more years and uh, to show people how Scot- how Scotland engages engage with the world and how the world's influential on Scotland and particularly the channels and networks and the nature of those channels and networks through which Scotland uh, and Scottish ideas and practice grew to be so influential internationally. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm that I, I'm unconditionally going to endorse Arthur Harmon's why, uh, Scotland, why Scotland invented the, how Scotland invented the modern world uh, and, and everything in it, I think the first edition says, uh, right. which, which isn't the case, but uh, Scotland <laughs> certainly has a disproportionate impact, uh, but that comes about through particular structural reasons. Well, I, let's... let's one of the things you mentioned in the introduction, which which I I appreciate, and, you know, as an American, it's it's interesting. It's very difficult to uncouple the idea of the state, you know, because we have a birth certificate per se, because we have a, um, you know, we can we can name these days: seventeen seventy six, seventeen eighty nine. You know, some of these really important dates that that kind of found our country. Um, and 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 then unfortunately in our school system we don't really spend a lot of time talking before those times so so it really is more of a history of government versus a history of a country um, but you mentioned in your book that that Scotland is more of a country um, as opposed to a state um, talk a little bit about that and 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 how people in Scotland um, think of their country. Well, I, I, people in Scotland, I, I don't have any doubt really that Scotland's a nation, whether or not they want it to be an independent state. Uh, they don't doubt on the whole that it is, uh, uh, that it is national and that it's a, long, it's a historic nation. And one of the interesting things, I suppose, is not only uh, in Europe, but in the United States itself, 
the boundaries of the state have changed quite a lot in the last century, in the US's case, the last two centuries. The US, of course, expanded enormously in the in the 19th century after the Louisiana purchase from Napoleon. You know, so what what the United States is and what many of the countries in Europe are is, has changed almost within uh, uh, human memory. And if, if you're going to talk about, for example, the accession of Hawaii as the 50th state in 1959, most definitely within human memory. But one of the, the paradoxes of Scotland is Scotland isn't a state, but it is a jurisdiction. It is a separate, uh, a, a separate legal system and, of course, a separate government which now administers that legal system. But it also is at almost exactly the same boundary with England, uh, which is the only country it borders, since 1237 and the quick claim of York by King Alexander II of Scots. So that's an extraordinary period of time. There isn't an, another country in Europe which has boundaries that have been so consistent over so long. And yet, you know, for many people, oh, of course, and technically, Scotland isn't uh, an independent state. It isn't an independent state, but it is a very consistent country over time, much more consistent than almost any other country in the world. Hmm. Yeah, probably more consistent than even its neighbor in England in, in many regards. Certainly it is, since uh, England held a, a large and then smaller amount of territory in France, which was part of England until 1558. And uh, the Channel Islands are all that's left of that. Yeah. What now? Tell me. Um, so, so each it's interesting. Like each each uh, culture, country seems to influence the world in its own specific and, and, and unique way. Um, you know, England, much like maybe the the Roman Empire, kind of Im imposed its will through military strength, through through um, a lot of um, uh, you, you know, planting their flag and, and saying we now own this this section of land and such. Um, Scotland seems to be a little a little bit different in it in how it influences the world and the, and the, and uh, culturally um, and and even politically. So, talk a little bit about about Scotland as an identity and and what um, you know how it how it influences its unique way of influencing um, you know the world that we live in. Well, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to downplay the fact that there are quite a lot of uh, uh, Scottish soldiers involved in the British Empire. Uh, one of the things which is perhaps not uh, tremendously nice about them, but it shows a very different viewpoint, is that in some cases they knew that they were playing uh, a great imperial game, which they didn't altogether sign up to, but they were carrying out nonetheless. So, for example, um, General Napier who was in command in one of the Indian campaigns in the 1850s, said on starting the campaign to his officers, gentlemen, we are now about to embark on the usual Anglo-Saxon process of rapine, robbery and murder. <laughs> Which is hardly, <laughs> hardly a model endorsement. But the interesting thing is that he was living in, and you get this in some Scottish imperial servants, that he was living in two worlds. He was living in the world where he was a British officer and he was living in the world where he didn't quite believe in it um, wow. at the same time, which is a bit awkward, but, but yeah. uh, you see, you, you've got plenty of, there's plenty of evidence of that uh, during the British empire. Anyway, the, the, one of the, the great advantages that Scots had was that before the union with England in 1707, they'd acquired um, an ability to, meld into societies that they emigrated to and joined, partly because one of the ways in which they um, uh, reinforced their own position economically was because Scotland didn't have a great amount of stuff, especially luxuries, to trade, but actually quite a taste for importing luxuries. One of the, th uh, the things that, that prominent Scots did was become merchants abroad and actually control the export trade to Scotland from the country that was exporting. So um, they, they got a, a, a way of um, fitting in to new cultures and that proved immensely important in the British uh, imperial period. It enabled them to gain the trust of uh, not always 
uh, not always a, a trust that wasn't abused, I have to say, but the trust quite often of local peoples. It made them enthusiastic for learning local languages. But even if you think, if you think of uh, the U.S. itself, whereas um, Irish uh, Americans are a big presence, and whereas even the, more recently the Scots Irish have been a big presence, a lot of people who are Scottish just who, who, and who emigrated to the United States. I mean, some of them absolutely do identify with the Strat with with the diaspora, but many of them over time simply faded into American society, and that was in a way typical uh, typical of Scots historically. They often they often embraced the host society. That was one of the things that made them uh, that made them different. One of the ways in which they when they wanted to form a, a diasporic organization overseas, it was usually to promote the interests of their fellow Scots and to get them jobs that other members of the uh, citizens of the British Isles wouldn't be able to get. So mm -hmm. they were, uh, they had a certain capacity, what you might call negative capability to absorb uh, other cultures, uh, which made them invaluable in terms of uh, spreading uh, education, religion, uh, cultural practices, uh, railway developments and innovations throughout the British Empire, uh, and and gave them a very a very strong role in the creation of the civic and intellectual infrastructure of the empire. There's and and, and there is there is a lot that that um, you know again thinking as an American one one of the one of my heroes that I've and I think we talked a little bit about him when when you were on the show before. But one of my absolute heroes of the American Revolution is is a guy by the name of Hugh Mercer, who um, of course fought at the at the Battle of Culloden and then and then as a Jacobite and and uh, immigrated here and and you know became eventually a general for for Washington's army. But there's you know John Paul Jones. I mean there there are there are um, a number of very famous um, Scottish born. Americans that 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 were truly um, kind of uh, uh, pushed that that uh, independent spirit and 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 it's interesting because it, and maybe it is because of of um, their relationship to the British Empire that um, that love hate hate love <laughs> relationship that that really pushed um, you know the Americans forward and and and. Um, you know, and, and eventually their their search for independence. Well, there's an interesting thing going uh, going on there because uh, Hugh Marcelo, as I remember, was was killed at Saratoga in 1777 as Brigadier General in the Continental Army. That's right. Uh, was yeah, he was um, uh, he was obviously fought at Culloden. He was a Jacobite, and what happened was that uh, some. Those those Jacobites who, who opposed the Union supported an independent Scotland, who who remained in uh, Great Britain, tended to uh, support the Loyalist cause in the American War of Independence, and those that spent their time abroad, principally in France and elsewhere, tended to support the Continental cause. Uh, most of clearly supported the Continental cause, and of course there are also people who um, like John Paul Jones. I think many Americans, I would have surprised if many Americans know that John Paul Jones, the Scotsman, who actually wasn't very keen on the um, uh, uh, on the British Empire, because the uh, uh, as his actions showed, as um, uh, because it, people like Jones, and there's a parallel to him in uh, Cochrane, the liberator of Chile and Brazil, in the uh, in the wars of independence in. Uh, South America in the 1820s, people like them were a kind of, they're an extension of what I, that quote I gave you from Napier. They didn't just have doubts about what they were doing. They actually, they actually were quite prepared to do something else. Um, so uh, they were quite prepared to effectively um, challenge indirectly as Cochrane did or directly as John Paul Jones did yeah. the interests of the British Empire. And uh, that was that. That's that's a very interesting feature of Scots uh, in America. And of course, there are others who come later who are associated with imperial opportunity. And one of those, I guess, that's always ch challenging because he's still still with you is is Alan Pinkerton and the Detective Agency. Uh, so that uh, uh, the 
uh, uh, one of the interesting things there, and it's very nice to, to, I was at the memorial in Edinburgh for the Scottish volunteers in the, for the Union dead, is there was a, a monument that was put up to those Scots who fell fighting for the Union in 1861 to 65. And uh, that, was all, that was connected to actually the first statue of Lincoln, which was put up in Europe, was put up in Edinburgh. Huh. So, wow. so there's this, um, th there, there is this desire which isn't limited to the British Empire and continues during the British Empire to embrace other causes. I mean, there's a, there are a group of Scots who support, who go to Italy to fight with Garibaldi for the reunification of Italy to recognize the causes of uh, independence and liberty and to fight for them. You, you know, I, um, that that kind of that brings me to to oh I actually before I get there I wanted to ask you a question um, specifically about um, about your book and, and the title it's, it's Scotland the Global History 1603 to the present now Scotland is an, is a much more ancient country than certainly America um, why did you pick 1603 as as your start date and, and why is that significant uh, because 1603 is when um the King of Scots, James VI, becomes James I of England and is the first monarch to rule England and Scotland. At that point, although it doesn't become part of a single country, Scotland becomes part of what's called a composite monarchy, which is uh, a group of kingdoms under one king, which is a common feature in, in uh, Europe before the 20th century of how European states were arranged. It's, it's not entirely limited to Europe, it is, but it is much more typical of Europe than elsewhere. And, but what it meant was that Scotland ceased to be a completely independent state in 1603. It became part of a composite monarchy. And, and that's a constitutional change. And it led, to, um, it led to a different relationship between Scotland and the wider world, partly because uh, although Scotland maintained its independence, as uh, in terms of government and internal affairs, because foreign affairs were reserved to the crown, not to parliament, but to the crown, James appointed ambassadors himself, which meant he appointed them principally in England's interest. And so Scotland ceased to have, a, uh, by a matter of erosion, ceased to have a meaningful foreign policy in the first 25 to 30 years after 1603. Uh, because basically when the king appointed somebody, the king appointed one ambassador uh, for the whole kingdom. And that person naturally represented English interests predominantly. Interesting. Okay. That, that makes sense. So, so it, it really, um, it both, so it made Scotland kind of the, the, the center point of the British empire in a way, because he, because of the, of James, the first being, um, you know, being, being Scottish, <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. Well, he, 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 he certainly was Scottish. Um, and uh, of course, his son, Charles I, was also born in Scotland. Right. Um, um, what, what about it, it's, uh, the relationship it, it has with its other close neighbor, France? And, um, you know, that I think this actually speaks to today a lot because I know there, there are many in Scotland. For example, when, when Brexit was going on, there were many that, that wished... Um, in Scotland to remain part of the European Union, um, and and I th and I think I suspect a lot of that is because of its close relationship with France. Um, is that true, or, or talk to me a little bit about that relationship between Scotland and France? Well, I think Scotland, every single area of Scotland, uh, every local authority area, all thirty-two voted to remain in the European Union in twenty sixteen, and that that was I think born out of a. Uh, of certainly a wider European identity in Scotland, not mm -hmm. not limited to France, but France okay. has been historically a, a single an important component of that. So Scotland's closest relationship with a European power was with France, and before uh, the Reformation, and Protestantism tended to move Scotland closer to the Netherlands in the 17th century and the 18th century than it was with with France. With some exceptions, um, the the Jacobites uh, being an exception, but Scotland's historic relationship with France was very close. Uh, between the 1530s and 1904, Scots could become naturalised in France more or less automatically as French citizens. Uh, Scots rose to be um, 
com commanders of the French armed forces. Um, they they provided troops to the French uh, to uh, the French army more or less continuously, sometimes more and sometimes fewer between 1400 and 1763. Um, the uh, and uh, they were important, very important in the struggles of between France and England in the Thirty Years' War, both in the liberation of Rouen, which was the turning point of the war, and also in the victory um, uh, uh, over the English forces at Bauge in 1421. So they were, uh, they, which was an, a virtually entirely Scottish armed force. So hmm. um, an expeditionary force under the Earl of Buchan. So they were... Um, they were absolutely central. And one of the interesting things I think you can see in terms of that historically re-envisioned, and there are plenty of connections that are still there, is if any of your listeners, for example, put into YouTube as a search, uh, soldiers of um, French March, soldiers of Robert the Bruce, you'll see um, uh, one, of the one of the most moving ones is an event that took place only about five years ago where President uh, Macron is present uh, for the state funeral of two uh, French special commandos who were killed in action uh, in Africa. And the, 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 the solemn march, which goes on for several minutes on the pipes as well, is the March of the Soldiers of Robert the Bruce, which was allegedly played by uh, Joan of Arc's uh, men in the attack on, on Rouen in 1431 and was played allegedly again at Bannockburn in 1314 uh, when Robert the Bruce defeated the English. So it, this, is, this immense history is still very present in moving historic state moments you can see uh, celebrated in France itself to this day. That, you know, it is, it's really interesting to me because I know um, historically France has, has always also been England's you know, great rival and so that um, being a, uh, um, what am I trying to say, a, a, um, a tipping point, a, a, a way of um, uh, almost a, um, it's a unique position for Scotland to be in, to be, be uh, you know, largely friendly with, with, with especially the, the Catholic Scots, friendly with France. Um, and and having this also being kind of under the the reign of, of England is is a unique place for Scotland to be. Well, uh, the, the, yes, I mean I think religion matters matters a bit less uh, these days from the point of view of sure. uh, Scots relationship with France. But um, uh, indeed, I think one of the things that Scots find quite difficult if they spend time in England is that a lot of a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of basic low level hostility towards France. Um, which you can find quite widespread in, uh, in a widespread in society, and and when the first time I came across that, I just wonder what on earth it was, you know, <laughs> because uh, it, uh, it, you just don't you just don't get it. I mean, people are very conscious of the historic ties, uh, even if they don't feel very close uh, these days. And of course, for a short period of time, Scotland and France were united as a joint monarchy uh, in the late 1550s, and it's really a, that's a case of uh, very much a case of historically what might have been because the early death of uh, uh, King Francis II of France meant that Mary Queen of Scots, his wife, came back to her homeland as the Queen Dowager rather than ruling it as a joint uh, composite kingdom with France as the Queen of France. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, wow. Okay. Um Oh, I, here's another thing you have, by the way, in your book, and, and I would really, I'm going to put a link in the description for people to, to pick up your book. I strongly recommend it. There are beautiful photographs, beautiful pictures that you have in the center here. Um, and I want to ask you a little bit about, um, you have several that, that have to do with um, uh, slavery, the, uh, the, I am, I'm not a man. And, and a brother, which 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 you uh, talk about, may have inspired um, Robert Burns. Um, you also, uh, you know, have some other pictures regarding that. Talk about um, uh, the Scottish role in abolition, and um, uh, you know how how that turned in. You know what 
how did how did that happen? And what was I guess the the feelings in Scotland with that? So it's there. First of all, to be on on the negative side, there's no question but that Scots were very strongly involved, not so much with chattel slavery within Scotland itself, but in terms of the business, uh, the business and trading end of the trade in enslaved persons. So, mm-hmm. um, it, for example, I mean the book does go into the detail of details of Oswald Grant and Company, and Oswald, who was Benjamin Franklin's friend, and actually concluded the Treaty of Paris. Uh, which recognized the independent United States in 1783, was a career slaver. Uh, he took over a Royal Africa Company station at the mouth of the Sierra Leone River and uh, on Bance Island and created a, a, a large-scale slave station there. So uh, basically, uh, there are things to be said about, about, about Scottish participation in the slave trade. Sure. That, that said, the two most important judgments... Uh, of the 18th century in England and Scotland, uh, the uh, Somerset case and uh, on uh, uh, and the um, uh, the uh, the, com- the comparable case in Scotland a few years later were both heard in front of Scottish judges, and Lord Mansfield, uh, who whose uh, niece incidentally was uh, a mixed race girl called Dido Bell. Who stayed? Who stayed as part of the his own household? Um, he uh, he ruled that you couldn't uh, uh, effectively you that once a, an enslaved person was in England, they had the rights of an English citizen and uh, a, a, a British citizen. And likewise in Scotland, there was a very strong pro-abolition, oh, not pro-abolition, but pro-rights of enslaved persons a few years later, which meant slavery couldn't be accommodated on Scottish soil. And there was a widespread view that this was um, uh, the Joseph Knight case, that this was um, a, a, a matter of historic moment at the time. So all the judges of Scotland um, who were eligible to sit at that judgment did sit. And there were some pretty strong, um, uh, strong things said. For example, the Enlightenment philosopher Lord Keynes, who was also a, a judge, said, "You know, we are not we are not sat here to do wrong, but to do right." Um, during the judgment process itself, so they were very clear that there was no right of ownership uh, mm. in Scotland. And later, uh, it, Scotland disproportionately contributed. To the petitions for abolition, uh, which were put into the British Parliament prior to the abolition to the abolition of the trade in 1806, and of course later in the 19th century, um, uh, uh, Livingston uh, became very strongly associated with burning opposition to the uh, trade in Africans within Africa. Uh, particularly by uh, Arab traders. Uh, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I think 33 African countries honoured Livingston on the um, centenary of his death in, 18, in 1973 by issuing stamps and so forth. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I think, um, you know, and, and it, it takes, I think there's, there's, um, there's a great song that I enjoy by the the Silly Wizards, just kind of kind of a cra- crazy song, song called "The Queen of Argyle," and then it talks about the uh, you know a, a place of of of, uh, 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 of of great scholars and great drinkers. And and when I think of Scotland, that's kind of one, that's kind of one of the one of the things I imagine is is these these really kind of deep thinkers, you know, when and and great um, literary masters, um, you know, people like Burns. People like Adam Smith, um, people that that really shaped in, in a deep, deep way how Westerners think. Again, really punching above their weight as far as uh, the the things that 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 as an American, like I just think intuitively, really came from ideas that came from Scotland. And one of those absolutely is 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 these the. the abolition of you know that, that no man has a right to own um another man uh, absolutely and i think although although i mean i 
I do suggest I'm on the whole somewhat persuaded of the argument that the medieval Scottish Declaration of Our Broth had a, a role in the uh, Declaration of Independence, though it certainly can't be proved. It was very clear that the Enlightenment philosopher Francis Hutcheson did because of Hutcheson's uh, repeated statements that uh, that the ill treatment of a colony were sufficient grounds for it to rebel and seek its own independence, which were made and were quoted by the founding fathers on many occasions and were made in the 1720s and 30s. So absolutely um, uh, agree with that. And, in, and indeed, uh, Jefferson's commitment to useful knowledge uh, was itself very deeply a Scottish Enlightenment commitment. The Royal Society of Edinburgh, the National Academy of Scotland, was founded in 1783 to be a place uh, to promote useful knowledge. And the what is now the University of Strathclyde was founded in 1796 to be a place of useful learning. And one of the ways in which it proved itself to be useful was by admitting women to its classes straight away in 1796. So um, absolutely, uh, that's one of the uh, uh, that's one of the key links between Scotland and the United States Enlightenment thought, because the implications of Scottish Enlightenment thought were um, very compatible with American civic republicanism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it was. Um, I, I want I wanted to ask. So this is kind of a question that that is both in the in you know a historic question and kind of i am trying to understand what's happening today with it um just as curiosity and that's you know one thing that's very um strong at least at least stereotypically as we think of scotland is the idea of familial relationships um you know clans mm. um and 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 their um role in, in governing society o over and above or side by side with a civil government. Um, and, and I'm curious about like, you know, how that evolution took place and today, um, you know, whether they, they still play a role or um, if it is more like, you know, like Alliance club kind of thing, like, I, like what, what is the role of, of clans in Scottish society today as and and how, how did that develop over time? Well, I think, I think, we, uh, for various reasons, um, partly through romanticization, partly through kind of the the uh, the ethnicizing of Scottish history in the Victorian period and and earlier, the clan idea, the clan system is a Victorian invention as a term um, that doesn't have any previous existence, but uh, that that became unduly separated, and. And, and it's difficult to understand when it's completely separated off. But what is, what is um, most accurate is that Scotland was always a very strongly networked society with strongly, strongly regional and strongly networked um, both in its more remote regions and also around its big cities because its cities haven't changed much. I mean, you're in Arizona and you... And you uh, obviously well aware of what's happened to Phoenix in the last 50 years. Right. But, uh, but Aberdeen, Glasgow, um, Dundee and Edinburgh were the four largest cities of Scotland in 1500, and that's what they are now. Um, so you're actually looking at a multiple, uh, uh, multiple networks which are partly based on kinship, absolutely, relationships. They're partly based on um, obligation, uh, which is obligation from coming from the same area. Um, and quite a lot of, even in, in what are thought of as clan lands, like uh, um, like Cameron of Lachiel's lands, a lot of those who um, were notionally Camerons weren't Camerons at all. You know, they weren't related at all. They were just, they were just on Cameron lands, but they had a strong link. They had a strong link of personal obligation. And also the link, links which went beyond obligation to institutions and to loyalty to locality. So what you see is an intensely networked society, networked on many different levels. And the, the clans, so-called, are part of that network, but they're not all of it. And so Scotland, remain, Scotland is, remains, even if you're not thinking in terms of clans, a very clannish societies. So for example, in the 17th century, Scottish merchants adopt people to be members of their family 
so that they'll um, so that they'll be part of the business that they're running in Rotterdam or Poland huh. or whatever, um, because it brings people it, it brings people in, and uh, you know even in the nineteenth century we're talking about somebody like uh, Thomas Blake Glover who is in so many ways uh, the uh, the Scottish co-founder of modern Japan, and when he first gets the first commissions for the Japanese Navy, he asks his brother to be his shipping agent and to provide them. And uh, and his brother, uh, but his brother doesn't get it from another relative. His brother gets the ships from a local yard where he's got close friends. <laughs> so <it's> all... <laughs> and so the first three uh, Japanese naval ships are built in the 1860s in Aberdeen because Glover. Uh, comes from Aberdeen because his brother's a shipping agent in Aberdeen and because Hall and Co are the Aberdeen yard that Charles Glover knows best as a shipping agent. So wow. that's it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's, there's the, obviously, you know, when you, the, the most, one of the most important things in any kind of business or, or any kind of relationship is the idea of trust. And so you can see how those networks would be important. So the, the fact that they would that they would literally adopt people in and start, you know, and 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 have those relationships and and those networks, as you say, you know, I I can I can understand that. That's that's an interesting uh, way. Um, so so today, um, it's it, Scotland is quite a networked society today. It's not maybe as intensely networked in the past because. You know, there are many, there's much more in the way of mobile population and changing places of life, of living, uh, even yeah. than there was in the imperial era for more people. So uh, populations are less stable than they were in the past, but it is still, it's still, still a pretty highly networked place. I remember one of my first um, uh, 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 bits of teaching in a university, I was actually teaching Stanford abroad um, in Oxford. And this very good student from Stanford, obviously they would be, she said to me, this, it was regarding a, a, a Scottish novel, this is very unrealistic because people keep on meeting people they know or are related to in the book. And I said, well, actually, it's just, it's, if it's not, it's not California, you know, <laughs> this is what happened. This is what happens to me now. So of course it happened in 1820. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I was, I was, um, I spent some time in my, in my young, yeah. you know, my early twenties in the, um, small farming, small farming towns in Iowa and Nebraska. Um, yeah. and I would go and I would, I would, uh, um, yeah, I would play music for them. Um, you know, in, in nursing homes and such for, for people, for older people. And it was so interesting for me to talk to these people and um, it is such a new and novel thing for people to, you know, be so mobile, so move around. I would talk to, to you know, 80-year-old women who had never left their county, um, who, you know, their entire family and family life, their entire life was really dictated in a, in a maybe a 50-mile radius at most. Um, and maybe they met you know, 15 men in their lives. Like it was very an interesting, something that the modern person, especially in America, has a hard time grasping is, is how tightly wound um, the, the, the human family is. Yeah, and, and historically speaking, one of the reasons that Scotland, um, not a particularly wealthy country now, but it became, it became a wealthy country in the 19th century, uh, not exactly overnight, but reasonably rapidly, was that was that basically Scots who went out abroad repatriated a large amount of money home. They invested. Um, and one of the key impacts of the First World War was that actually the uh, uh, Scottish investment overseas from the now thriving Scottish economy, so there was an initial investment back into Scotland, then an investment overseas, that was really uh, that was really squeezed out. It was a very large part of overall British overseas investment in 1914, and uh, a lot of uh, some of the some of the survivors are are in the investment trust movement. So um, mm. uh, you know, but basically investing in in railways, um, 
your infrastructure in North America, right? At least Canadian Pacific Rail, Canadian Pacific Railroad. Um, all of that was part of the 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 Scottish global footprint, but there was a desire always to benefit Scotland. That's 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 interesting and, and fantastic. What um, there's there's always been um, great tension, sometimes less, sometimes more, between England and Scotland and the Brit and their role in the British Empire. Um, and and there's been a uh, you know from what I have read and what I what I understand you know both um, consolidation of power as well as you know um, dissolving of power and and, and uh, you know lessening in certain degrees and that and that again being a, a an American you know all of a sudden these things becomes very pertinent when we start talking about like national divorce and <laughs> things like that here where where's a few states are like hey maybe we don't like being under the rule of somebody that lives a thousand miles away and so things like that yeah. and um and so I'm curious about the the both um what Scotland um as an independent country um which I think it has rarely been uh, whether that's a, a, a reality, whether that's something that could happen, um, and what what's kind of the the taste for that in Scotland these days? Okay, well, so before before um, the Union of seventeen oh seven, Scotland spent about uh, seven hundred years or eight hundred uh, years as a state or, a, or as a state or a kingdom. So okay, it was it's. Uh, uh, um, it's not actually like uh, like Ireland. It was a for a long time a European state, and built the uh, a judicial system, the institutional system that went with statehood. Um, for the the Union of seventeen oh seven with England was very unpopular at the time, and that's why there were um, four uh, armed risings to end it, which finally were defeated at Culloden in seventeen forty six. And which intermittently called on France and Spain for help. Uh, the British Empire, uh, into which Scot which uh, Scots were increasingly were increasingly pulled, both by using their continental links basically for industrial espionage against the countries that they previously worked with, because you know the British Empire actually used Scots working in in the foreign European imperial services. As ways of understanding what those services were doing, they used them as kind of you know low-level espionage. <laughs> right. And they also, and they also gave them really nice job, uh, uh, good opportunities, particularly in the East India Company initially, and then elsewhere. So there, were, a lot of Scots benefited very greatly from the British Empire. But one of the paradoxes of the end of the British Empire is that Scotland was more comfortable in the British Empire. <laughs> But it is out of the British, out of the British Empire, because because um, Scotland had an identity which was very clear. It was Scottish and British, but that was uh, an identity that was shared, for example, by Canada. They were Canadian and British. By Australia, they were Australian and British. By New Zealand. Uh, by uh, indeed, um, by a, large, a significant proportion of the population in in some other countries, right? So, so once that started to 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 go, um, one of the reactions in England was to uh, was to demand that the that Britain as a concept become kind of homogenous, a single thing, um. And that was built round. There's a big gap between, say, the 1938 Empire Exhibition, where all this this multiplicity of joint nationalisms is visible, and the 1951 Festival of Britain, where Britain is meant to be just just one kind of thing, one country where everything's the same. And there really wasn't space for Scotland in that in that world. I mean, Ireland had already gone, of course, apart or in large part had, had left the British Empire. Right by by the post war era, but Scotland had participated in it. Now it wasn't there to participate in, so all those opportunities overseas were gone. And at the same time, uh, you know, people were putting more pressure on, sometimes accidentally, sometimes deliberately, on why is Scotland different? We're all British, 
Um, whereas before in the empire, you know, you'd accept that, for example, that the Australian administration or Australian education did something different. And, you know, when it came, and so in Scotland, talking with somebody who's worked in education, that in the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of pressure on the education system in Scotland to conform to English norms. But Scots were also aware that the higher education system in the United States was actually much more like Scotland's than it was like England's. So we no longer, for example, we always used to do law degrees as a second degree. Okay, what yeah. still happens in the US, but we don't now because that's become part of the of the Britishization of the system, if you like. Interesting. But, uh, we all we do people go to eight at eighteen to do a law degree. They still sometimes do it as a second degree, but the culture has really shifted in sixty or seventy years. So at the same time, you 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 were, people were conscious that uh, they were being asked to be more like the rest of the UK, and at the same time, they were conscious that actually, if you looked across the the former British Empire. It was their system which was more prominent by far than the English one. That's interesting. That is, that is really, really interesting because the, um, yeah, it, it, it's almost a, um, a, a what makes sense kind of a thing. You know, it, it, in other words, it, it, what is working and then trying to, trying to just put a, a round peg in a square hole in England saying, hey, Scotland, you, know, you need to do it our way. However, you're, Scotland's looking around saying, well, everyone's doing it the way that we've done it. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're, we're the influencers here on this. Well, exactly. And that, and that pressure to conform helped to, it's not the only thing, but it certainly helped to feed a situation now where, I mean, first of all, there was a, a, a Scottish parliament established 23 years ago in 1999. Right. And uh, the support for an, an independent state is runs at about fifty percent. So it's a very uh, there's a lot of ancestral loyalty to the United Kingdom, but there is also a lot of enthusiasm for an independent state. And so it's a rather uneasy balance in Scotland right now because of that, because people just don't see that they're getting the same room to be themselves. Uh, and to uh, uh, to have opportunities abroad as they as they once did, um, and uh, they see that they see that their nomenclature uh, is preserved elsewhere in the world, that the, but is lost is lost um, or being lost in Scotland. So, for example, you know, in uh, uh, in America, there is a public school system, which means the schools provided. Uh, uh, by uh, 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 in general f for free, right? Um, but that's what a Scottish public school was. But a public right. school, but it isn't anymore because if you, I mean, I grew up with the term public school, meaning a free secondary school. But that's but that's not what the uh, England, of course, a public school is actually a school you pay enormous sums of money for, and only a few people go to. I've heard that, and it really <laughs> confuses me. <laughs> But, but we speak the same language on this one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. Wow. Um, so, and, and by the way, and I think, I think that, that those, you know, there, there's something in the air because I, I think there's a lot of that same feeling in America as far as just people not feeling like they can be themselves, that they can, that they can have their own cultural identity, that they have to really, um, um, you know, be in line with whatever the zeitgeist is of the elites, you know, and whatever that looks like, you know, um, and, and I, I, I don't want to get political. So I'm just going to say whatever that looks like the zeitgeist of the day is the fact that, um, is, is what pe is the, the pressure to conform to that. Um, and it really, I think leaves a lot of people saying, wait a sec, there's nothing wrong with the way that we do things. And, and, and if you would just allow us to do our thing, <laughs> it would make for a much, much more peaceful thing. <laughs> I think that it's really important to to accept pluralism. And I, don't, I think that um, if you have cultural pluralism, you often don't get a political division to the same extent. It's the desire to create yes. cultural singularity that creates political problems. I mean, to say, to say just... Uh, 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 
one thing, although I'm I'm not sure it won't ever come back, you know, Quebec, Quebec has been handled relatively well by Canada, the Canadian situation, because the the privileging of French, the French language within Canadian administration, uh, the powers that uh, that Quebec uh, has, and the ability for Quebec to represent itself abroad, Quebec has got more uh, international representation than quite a number of sovereign states. Uh, have all helped to give people that breathing room in right. Quebec, which means that they don't feel the same pressure to set up their own state. And if you want to, if you want to defuse political situations, you've got to give people the cultural space to be themselves. I think that is that is absolutely wise, you know, and, and it also allows the flexibility for people. Um, to to live the kind of life they they want to live, I you know, and and we see that even in and I think you even mentioned it in the interview today, you know, in 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 times gone past when 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 there when you had a um and I and I forget the term but a multi king kingdom, um you know you 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 could have some flexibility to live under the laws that that. Maybe not that you have of your own choosing, but you can be you can manipulate it in such a way to give you a modicum of freedom that that you don't in a in a um, you know a one party rule one kingdom rule society. Um, I, I think you know I, the, the 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 easy kind of um, example I give is is that of Paul Paul of the New Testament where where he's you know he's both a Roman citizen, a Jew and a Christian. And so he can kind of like manipulate, he can kind of manipulate the system of, 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 to get done what he needs to get done. And that was much more uh, accustomed in the past than it is today. Uh, I agree. Multiple, the uh, uh, multiple identities, the characteristic of composite monarchies. And, uh, you know, in, in a way the, the, um, uh, the British crown is still a composite monarchy because King Charles is the head of state of 15 countries and Scotland retains a separate royal household uh, and has done all the way uh, all the way through from 1707. So um, uh, there is a diversity under the crown, uh, which is not, of course, an American tradition, but right, right. Uh, diversity under the crown is very much a European tradition but one that's been lost to the 20th century. So to take, you know, a tragic example, um, it was very difficult. Where the countries were divided between minorities in Europe, it was very difficult. But the Austrian Empire in the 19th century went to enormous lengths to try and balance Czechs and Germans within what is now Czechoslovakia, what became Czechoslovakia, what's now the Czech Republic. And in the end, um, all that was swept away by, I'd say, Woodrow Wilson taking the view that, you know, this is really all about the Czechs and they're having their own state. And that was important. But yes. actually what it did was it created a German minority whose uh, rights uh, were not acknowledged. And that gave Hitler, first of all, gave Hitler the, the pretext of intervening on their behalf. And then two million of them were expelled from the Czech Republic in 1948 and mostly never gone back. So personal tragedy is, I mean, it's simply difficult to administer diverse cultural situations, but personal tragedy and national tragedy is just around the corner if you don't acknowledge their right to exist. And I'm afraid we're seeing that right now in Ukraine. I, I agree. I completely agree. Um, it's just to, I wanted to, to finish up, and I want to thank you so much for your time, Murray. We're talking to Professor Murray Pitta, the, the author of his new book, Scotland, The Global History, 1603 to the Present. Um, you know, and it, it, it's kind of maybe strange to ask somebody because I know I know how much time and how much what, – what a great scholar you are. But what in, – in writing this particular book, what did you learn or what did you gain um, – in, in putting this book together um, that, that, that maybe surprised you or interest you or, or, or what, what did you gain from, from putting this book together? What, I, what, I mean, there, there are a lot of things, but to, to pick, to pick one, uh, what I uh, learned was just how intense, uh, even more intense than I thought the networks produced by Scots were 
And I never understood why, for example, the first head of the Imperial College of Engineering in Japan uh, was in his early 20s when he was appointed. And he was appointed because, first of all, um, his professor's professor was tried and he was too old to go. Then, then the, 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 a succeeding professor who'd been the student of that professor was tried and he just didn't fancy it. And he was getting a bit old himself. And so he gave it to his, fav his favorite graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> and so a Henry Dyer became head of the, and a very successful head of the Imperial College of Engineering in Japan and started to recruit all his staff from uh, Glasgow with the help of Lord Kelvin, um, who was the, the, the preeminent figure. And of course, that connection helped uh, Japan to be made aware of the Professor of Engineering's company, um, Bar and Stroud, which was designing a rangefinder and the 1903 FA3 rangefinder, which had just gone through tests uh, and uh, uh, be, was being sold by Bar and Stroud by the end of 1903, was bought in late 1904 for the Japanese Navy. And it uh, was the key reason why the Russian Pacific Fleet was wiped out to the Battle of Tsushima Strait early in 1905. <laughs> That's insane. They brought the latest technology. Um, so uh, there's a big, there's a big, several big pictures of the the dignitaries of Imperial Japan with this big Scotsman standing in the middle with a hat, and he's the only Westerner there, and it's Glover wow. because he's that's they know that he's actually got them technology which was only introduced into the world 18 months before uh, it, was, uh, it was used to fire Japanese guns in the Pacific. Wow. Wow. Scotland, the global history, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's right there in one, in one anecdote. That's in, that is wild. That, that's really impressive. Well, Thank you, Professor Piddick, for being on the show. I hope I'll, I hope to have you on again. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I enjoyed it too, Mike. And you know what? I envy you in Arizona, though I'm sure you envy us here in Scotland. I envy you your weather. Oh. I've been, I've been freezing for weeks. <laughs> well, I know. It's, it's, uh, it's going to hit 60 today, and, I, and I'm like, oh, I guess I need to get out my winter coat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, in terms of Fahrenheit here today, it's 36, I think. And okay, that, well, that's, that's cool. A warm day. You know what? I wanted to ask you one other thing because I know, um, you know, if you're like me, and I think you are, um, if there's anything you, you enjoy talking more about your accomplishments, it's also the accomplishments of, of your children. And I, and I've, because I've seen some of the things that, that you've posted, and, and we do a lot of music stuff on the podcast um and i know your your daughter is is quite the singer is quite the the opera singer can you talk a little bit about her and her accomplishments oh it's very it's, it's very kind of you to us so my younger daughter is uh an opera singer in vienna with the vienna state opera um yes so she's uh she's enjoying that she's enjoying life there it's extremely busy it is a most incredible house they put on 150 operas a year Wow. Um, and uh, it's, uh, and I go and it's absolutely full. It's marvelous to see just how, how dedicated they are. I don't think, I don't think the Met could, could beat them in terms of the dedication of the audience. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Place is full every night. And uh, after all, Austria's just got 8 million people in it. So I'm just, that's really takes me aback uh, just how busy it is. But she's, uh, she's enjoying it very much. But she, she misses, um, she misses Scotland and Ireland for the crack, I think, because Austria is a bit different in terms of the way people react, interact culturally. And right. uh, so she came back, she came back to do a Barnes, to, to do a Barnes supper uh, just, just this week, just flew in and flew out to sing at a Barnes supper. Obviously, oh, that's wonderful. But anyway, it was nice. It was, she enjoyed that, I think. Oh, that's good. That's, you know, like I said, we do a lot, a lot of it's piano oriented, but we do a lot of, of music on the podcast. So it, it's, it's fun to hear about great singers, great musicians doing great things. And, 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 and that Vienna is still such a vibrant place for classical music. It's awesome. Oh, it absolutely, it absolutely is. It's a, it's a remarkable city. Really worth yeah. going if you haven't managed to do that yet. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely on the, on the bucket list for sure. Well, Professor Pidek, thank you so much for your time, and, and we look forward to doing it again. Uh, 
a pleasure, a pleasure, Mike, and it's Maria, but uh, really good to talk to you again today. You are listening to And If Love Remains. The first of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. We're trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization 